chapter throughout uh, this, mo- um, this morning as well. Uh, and uh, if you're new or visiting, my name is Pastor Pete, and it's so good that you could join us on this cold, long weekend Sunday. So, officers at the Granite Shoals Police Department in Texas were trying to catch the county's dumbest drug users. So, this is how they did it. They posted a face a fake Facebook story about how drugs were tainted with the Ebola virus. And so the post said this, if you have recently purchased meth or heroin in central Texas, please take it to the local police or sheriff's department so that it can be screened with a special device. Do not use it until it's been properly checked for possible Ebola contamination. So do you think anyone responded to that? Well, of course they did, because this is America. No, I'm sorry. A lady by the name of Chastity Eugenia Hobson came forward to the police with illegal drugs that she had in her possession because she was afraid that, wait for it, it could be dangerous. And so she was obviously charged with possession and also made the list of dumbest criminals ever. Now, if you Google dumbest dumbest criminals ever, other people on this list, just for your entertainment, this Florida man who used his wanted pick for a Facebook profile. And how about this rob... Oh, sorry, this is the last one. There's also a robber, I don't have a picture for this, who left his number with the cashier of the shop he was going to rob because the manager wasn't there to open up the safe. So he left his number with them to say, hey, when the manager gets back, can you call me so I can rob you properly? And then my favorite dumbest criminals, these guys, they robbed a store, they didn't get balaclava, so they painted their faces black with permanent marker. You can imagine it was pretty easy for the police to identify them afterwards because they couldn't get the marks off. Now, why am I telling you about dumbest criminals? Because these three chapters, Numbers 22, 23, and 24, really reads like the Bible's version of dumbest criminals. It really does. Israel and Moses actually fade into the background in these three chapters. And three long chapters, we get a story play out. And it's a great story. If you ever get to read it again, do it. Some of you did it in your community groups. Good on you. It's played out between an enemy king, Balak, his hired magic worker slash seer slash prophet, Balaam, and even a talking donkey. All right, This is a deliberately humorous uh, few chapters. Right, the plans of this dumb king and this dumb prophet would be thwarted again and again by a dumb donkey, of all people. Now, why take up three whole chapters of this book of Numbers doing that? Well, it's to make this unshakable point. So, you know, no mistake at the end of it that you would see that God is completely in control and that nothing can stop him blessing his people. And that's really the message of these three chapters. But we're going to dip in and have a closer look, so why don't we pray, and uh, let's get into it. Father God, thank you for your word. Sometimes it entertains us because it is so interesting and so humorous. Help us not to miss, however, what this says about you and your desire and your plans and purpose to always bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got three points for you. We're going to go through the story take a step back, look at the message of the story, and then we'll look at the Messiah. Now, um, three happens to be the special number in these chapters, all right? So if you read it earlier, or if you're reading it again, notice things that happen three times, because you've got three parts in point one, 
all right, of my outline, three parts to the story, and in each part, you've got a series of three as well, all right? Three is the magic number. That's why most of my sermons have three points. No, that's just because I like three. Um, Numbers 22, we read it earlier. It opens with the king of Moab. All right, his name is Balak. It's a bit confusing. There's Balak and there's Balaam. All right, Balak's the king. Balaam's the prophet. Balak, he's putting together a plan to bolster his chances against a rising threat. So Moab is down the south of the promised land, and they were having to go through Moab to get to the promised land. Um, This is Israel, you remember, 40 years later. As we saw last week, this is a new generation, and they're about to step in to take the land that God had promised them. Now, the chapter earlier, we didn't look at last week in Numbers 21, you've actually got three military victories, one at the beginning, two at the end, and they were complete military victories. But you've got to remember, these are children of ex-slaves with no history of military conquest, all right? But they still won resoundingly. And of course, the reason is that the Lord God was with them. And then chapter 22 that we read earlier, um, as God had promised, He would put the fear and dread of the Israelites into the hearts of His enemies. And so Moab is there, Balak the king is there, and they're freaked out. Um, He looks and he sees, and he's able to see from a vantage point. We realize that later on when he's Uh, It gets Balaam to curse them, that he can see from a high vantage point, and he's able to see up to probably two million people. Imagine that, two million people camped out. And we know from the beginning of Numbers that there's 600,000 or so fighting men. This is a humongous army. For him, it's a bit like the swarms of locusts. That um, you remember in the Exodus, for those of you who know the story, one of the, the ten plagues is the locusts that devour Egypt. And, and the way that Balak sees them is like these locusts, the swarming animals are about to devour everything. Or in verse 4, he says they're like cows that lick up the grass. I don't know if you've ever seen cows feed, but they're pretty efficient grass-licking machines, all right? They lick up the grass with their big tongues, and it just gets ripped out of the ground. And he sees it like that. It's, he's freaked out, Yeah? And he knows that he can't overcome them in direct battle. So he thought he'd try cheating. So I reckon what Balak's doing here is sort of like the ancient way of doping in sports. Okay? Now, how he dopes is this. Um, Their worldview and the way they saw the world is a little bit different to ours, quite different to ours. And, And some of you might be thinking, is this even true? Well, the Bible says it's true, that it does happen. But their worldview is the world of magic, the world of Harry Potter, but not, you know, Harry Potter. It's darker and real. That you actually can access the demonic world and the spiritual world through magicians, uh, through what's called diviners. Okay, diviners, they, they try and tap into evil powers to try and see the future or see what's going on. It's called divination. Or seers are sometimes called, or sometimes even called prophets. And they're using dark arts, right? <laughs> so it's outstanding like Harry Potter, to... To, to see things and then to curse or hex their enemies. Now, again, in our day and age, that's something that you kind of think, is this even true? Does it even happen? Well, I don't have enough time to go through that at the moment, but the Bible does talk about there being a spiritual world, right? God who is good, all good, and also a dark spiritual world uh, headed up by Satan. Now, if you find that hard to believe, understand that it's only recently in our culture, in our time, that people don't believe in the spiritual world. 
And a lot of you have come from uh, countries or your parents or grandparents come from countries where the spiritual world and even fear of the demonic or fear of spirits is really real. But that's the world they lived in. And so Balak is thinking, well, this is how I'm going to cheat. I'm going to get Balaam, right, the chief hexer, the chief seer, the chief prophet uh, of the dark arts to help my cause. Now, we actually have non-biblical references to Balaam. This is one of the ways you know that the Bible is real history. I didn't just make these guys up. There is an, an, an ancient Near Eastern source that refers to Balaam. And Balaam was so famous, apparently, that he, he's a little bit like the Lord Voldemort of his time, if you know the Harry Potter reference. So he gets Balaam to help his cause. And as I said, three is the magic number. We've got three meetings, and we read it earlier, so we won't go through it in detail. Um, but the first time he sends his messengers, um, Balaam gets the message, right? But then he waits overnight to wait for God to speak to him, and the re- real and living God does speak to him, and he is told not to go with them. So he doesn't. Now, Balak, Balak sorry, the king thinks that Balaam, in verse 6, can curse and bless whoever he wants. But actually, God tells Balaam that he can't curse Israel because God, in verse 12, has determined to bless them. So Balaam, after the first meeting, says, no, I'm not going with you. Balak tries again, verse 15. And this time he tries more messengers and higher-ranking senior officials. The word actually in the original is prince, the princes. Probably not literally princes, but it's equivalent to like, imagine if we sent our deputy prime minister along with the foreign minister along with the whole cabinet, okay? You're getting the highest ranking people to go and woo Balaam. And he's offering Balaam this time in the second meeting. He doesn't even mention what Balaam's supposed to do. He just says, don't refuse because I've got a heap of money for you. So you must have offered him heaps of money. And then Balaam says, no, wait, one night. Again, God speaks to him overnight. Now, verse 20, God actually tells him, you can go this time, but only do what I tell you to do. And then before the third meeting, which we'll come to later, we're going to cut to the second scene and the next set of threes. And we didn't read this earlier. But the next morning, what happens? Balaam is getting ready to leave because God gave him permission to leave. But then look at verse 21, and we're going to pick up the story here. So have your Bibles open. Verse 21. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the Moabite officials. But God was very angry when he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Okay, puzzling, isn't it? And you might have been puzzled by this when you looked at it during the week in community groups. Didn't God just tell him it was okay to go? So why is God now angry that he went? Puzzling, isn't it? Now the answer is not given directly. But here it is with the Bible, uh, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And Hebrew narratives or Hebrew storytelling is a little bit different to how we're used to storytelling where a lot of these details are filled in. Hebrew narrative often leaves silences, and it's in the silences that you get the answer. So you remember the first time God appears to Balaam and says, you must not go. Balaam actually, when he gets up in the morning, says to the official what God tells him to do. I must not go. This doesn't happen this time. He gets the message from God, but he doesn't say anything in the morning. He just gets up to go with the officials. I think that's significant. Because God told him to go, but very strictly says, only do what I tell you. I think what's going on is Balaam is going, but the 
reward that they offered him probably got him to think twice about what he would actually do when he got there. Maybe he thought, when I get there, I'll make up my mind. Or maybe he was actually very tempted to do what the officials wanted him to do and not obey God because he could make some money. Maybe he thought, I'll get there, I'll play it by year, and then I'll pull a quickie on God and see if I can fool God. All right? That seems to be what's going on. He hasn't fully owned God's instructions. Now, if you're in doubt that this is going on, then the New Testament does help because the New Testament refers to Balaam a couple of times. Now, don't turn to it, but in that tiny little book just right before the end called Jude. Jude is so tiny, it doesn't even have chapters. It only has one chapter. So Jude verse 11, you can write it down, but we won't look it up. It says that Balaam's error was that he rushed for profit. So it seems the New Testament is confirming that Balaam wanted to make money. And that's why God was angry at him. So what does God do now? And here is the humor really starting. All right, so let's pick up the reading again, halfway through verse 22. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path, through the vineyards, with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord had pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it, so he beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord had laid down under Balaam, and he was angry and beat it with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, You have made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. It's funny, he didn't say, Wow, a talking donkey. <laughs> anyway, that's not explained. I don't know why. Verse 30, the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you've always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I've come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it hadn't turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared it. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I didn't realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, if you're displeased, I will go back. Then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. All right. So you notice three is the magic number, right? Three confrontations between Balaam and his donkey. And as I said, it's actually quite funny. It's humorous. And there's a play on words, isn't there, between seeing and speaking. I mean, remember, Balaam is the seer, and yet he couldn't see what the donkey could see. God uses a speaking donkey to reason with the guy who's supposed to do the speaking. All right? So it's supposed to be humorous. Balaam is like the dumb criminal that I talked about in my introduction. He can't even cut a break from his own donkey. 
Now, the consequence of all this is verse 35, right? He ends up understanding for sure what God had told him back in verse 20. He can go with them, but he must not do anything that God doesn't tell him to do. And so we've got that confirmed. Now, in verses 36 to 41, we won't read. Balaam has his final and third meeting, but this time it's now with King Balak himself. And he confirms now, he says, I'm only going to say what God tells me to say. Verse 38. And the scene is now set for um, scene number three. All right, so scene number three. Now we've got chapters 23 and 24, and they are long verses to summarize. So we won't read them. Let me just give you a quick summary of them. Essentially, you're going to get Balaam speaking three oracles. An oracle is a message from God. And the third oracle is the longest one, and it's chapter 24, and it has extended bits. But the story is this, right? Balak hires Balaam to curse God's people. But what happens? Each time he speaks, he doesn't curse them. Instead, he blesses them. And then it gets more and more and more. So I've summarized for you, just so we don't have to read it in detail, his blessings. Again, comes in threes. So the first one, chapter 23, 7 to 10, Israel is and will continue to be numerous and even be the envy of the nations. That's the first blessing. The second blessing, verses 18 to 24, he blesses the people because they have the Lord as their king and they will continue to conquer the nations like a devouring lion. Even more than a cow, they're going to be a lion. And then number three blessing, the whole of chapter 24, uh, they're truly and abundantly blessed, like it just gets better and better and better. Um, They will conquer the nations and their future will be even better than their present. So essentially you've got those three curses what's supposed to be curses turned into blessings now the point is this of course that king balak's plan gets completely turned on its head he wanted balaam to curse instead he blesses and you can actually get how exasperated um poor balak is um for example after the first blessing in chapter 23 verse 11 um have a look there verse verse 11 chapter 23 balak said to balaam what what have you done to me I brought you to curse my enemies, but you've done nothing but bless them. And then after the second blessing, he's like, can you just say nothing? Neither bless them nor curse them, because it's just going haywire for me. All right, and that happens three times. And so now you've got Balak, King Balak of Moab. King Balak is now the dumb criminal. Now he can't even cut a break. All right? So there you go. That's the story. Covered a lot of ground. Let's step back a little bit, and let's see how it relates to us. So I've got point number two, the message. And the first thing I want to talk about is the enemy. As I said, this is pretty humorous because God really does show Balak up to be a dumb criminal. But you know, the real life context wouldn't have been so funny. Um, Balak was a real king and he had a real army. And Balaam was a real person who really could access the spiritual forces of evil. And he must have got famous because he was able to do real damage. And God's people were about to enter into a land with real fortified cities, with real walls, occupied by real kings with real armies, and it was all opposed to them. And Moab was just the first. Right? Their enemy was real. And it's interesting here because there's actually parallels with the book of Exodus with the first big enemy of God's people. He was Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. 
and what he tried to do to destroy God's people. Um, Pharaoh is paralleled with Balak on a number of occasions here. Because Pharaoh saw what Balak sees at the beginning of chapter 22. He saw a people so numerous that he felt threatened, that would take over everything. And Pharaoh, like Balak, also tries three times to plot things to stop them growing. So Pharaoh plots number one to put them under heavier slavery, thinking that would break their back. That didn't work. So he makes number two Hebrew midwives, you remember, to kill all of their baby boys at birth. That doesn't happen either. And so the last plot he has was to order everyone to throw all their baby boys into the Nile so they drown at birth. All right, so Pharaoh has this terrible plan to destroy a people because he feels threatened by him. Genocide, essentially. And Pharaoh is a lot like Balak, or Balak is a lot like Pharaoh. The point is, the enemy is real. Now, what does the New Testament tell us today? If you're a follower of Jesus, and even if you're not a follower of Jesus, it tells us that people, human beings, God's creatures, we have a terrible enemy. And in fact, behind every earthly enemy, the Bible says, stands the ultimate enemy, Satan. In the book of Ephesians chapter 6, it says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. You see, whether you know it or not, and whether you feel it or recognize it or not, this enemy is real and he is working against all of God's people. And he wants to steal and kill and destroy and corrupt all the good things that God has put into his followers' lives. This is real. Again, some of you are more aware of this. Others, maybe this is the first time you've heard of it. But it's what the Bible tells us happens And it does happen. We have a real enemy, like there was in Numbers. But the point of Numbers is, of course, there's a big but. There's a twist, isn't there? See, Numbers reminds us through humor that though the enemy is real, and from one perspective, real and scary, but here's the thing. If you have the eyes to see, God will always win. You got that? If you have the eyes to see, and the way that God opened ba- Balaam's eyes and opened the donkey's eyes, sorry, opened the Balaam's eyes so that he could see what the donkey sees, then you would be able to see that God will always win. See, this story is really about the twist in the tale, isn't it? At every turn, the enemy tries something, but God turns it on his head. See, why is there that long bit in chapter 22 with Balaam and the donkey? Because he end up making the same point as he did in verse 20. So why this long, funny bit with Balaam and the donkey? Well, it's because it's trying to make a point. Balaam is the donkey. Did you get that? Balaam is his donkey. Because there's a parallel. What happens with Balaam and his donkey is what happens with Balak and Balaam. Did you catch that? What happens with Balaam and his donkey is what happened with King Balak and Balaam. Right? Balaam is the donkey. He can't get his donkey to obey him. Balak can't get Balaam to obey him. So the donkey and Balaam in chapter 24 can only say what God tells them to say and do what God tells them to do. That's the whole point. Balaam is his donkey. Now, just a little bit of an aside. I don't know if you read this and you thought, maybe Balaam is, you know, he's a pretty decent guy in this chapter. He doesn't seem so dark and evil. Um, he seems to follow God. God even actually reveals himself to Balaam, gives him the the spirit of prophecy so that he can actually speak like a true prophet. Is Balaam a good guy or a bad guy? Well, 
It's a good question. I don't know what you guys decided when you looked at it in your community groups. But if you only take this chapter, yeah, you might be thinking Balaam is an okay guy. But the assessment of the Bible together, because Balaam is referred to a couple more times in the Bible, the assessment of the whole Bible is that Balaam is really like Lord Voldemort, all right? He's not a good guy. He's a bad, bad guy. Firstly, he is not a worshiper of the Lord. He practices divination. He's a magician of sorts, dark arts. And those kind of things are strictly forbidden by God. Right? Don't touch it, don't do it, he says to his people. Now, Balaam's not one of his people, but he practices the dark arts that God forbids his people to do. And he's not mentioned directly, but next chapter, when we look at it next week, he is actually going to lead God's people astray and get them into a lot of trouble. And then when he is killed later on, as Israel conquers the land, the mark next to his name is bad, right? There's no positive assessment of Balaam anywhere in the Bible from this point onwards. But you see, the point of these chapters is this. Even this bad, bad man is nothing more than a dumb beast, right? He is his donkey. Balaam is the dumb beast who is used by God to achieve God's purposes, no matter how bad or powerful he might be. God can even use a donkey. He can even use a talking donkey to achieve his purposes. And that's the twist. It's even more funny because this is what God does. And so King Balak's plans are completely turned on its head, just like, remember I said there was a parallel between Balak and Pharaoh, king of Egypt? Right? Pharaoh also wanted to destroy God's people with three plots. But after each one, what happens at the beginning of Exodus? We won't turn to it, but essentially the same kind of thing. He fails. It gets turned on his head. The opposite happens. Um, he tries to wipe them out with slavery and drown their babies. Well, they multiply even more. And then the whole drowning plot is, of course, turned on its head because one of the people ends up putting Moses on the Nile who ends up in Pharaoh's own palace. So he ends up raising the future savior of his enemies in his own palace. It completely turned on its head. If you don't know the story, read the first few chapters of Exodus. Right? And that's what happens with Balak. He wants to curse Israel, but each time there's a twist. Now, I don't know if you've gathered um, recently and maybe felt and more in the media and so on, but the church in Australia, Christians in Australia, are under increasing pressure. Now, have you noticed that? We're increasingly, not just quietly ridiculed, but quite loudly ridiculed. Um, one of the uh, most uh, strongest critics of Christianity, and often happens, he's a columnist, he's an author, he also used to be a rugby player. His name is Peter Fitzsimons. I don't know if you know Peter Fitzsimons. This is what he wrote about Christians. He wrote this, Christians believe that a cosmic Jewish zombie who is his own father can make you live forever if you symbolically eat his flesh and drink his blood, while telepathically telling him that you can accept him as your master, so that he can remove an evil force from your soul, which is present in all humanity, because a woman made out of one rib bone and a mound of dirt was tricked into eating fruit from a magical tree by a talking snake. That's pretty typical of Peter Fitzsimons. When he writes about Christians, he makes fun of Christians. But it's not just Peter Fitzsimons, is it? Because increasingly, this is going to be the people that you go to school with, 
university with, your tutors, your lecturers, your workmates? See, how does it make you feel as a Christian when you feel that your faith is not just being challenged but ridiculed? Some people are really worried of what will happen to Christianity, to the church, to free speech, our ability to meet and hold on to what we hold dear and speak about that. What will happen in Australia because it's going in this direction? Well, we mustn't forget, and this is what the book of Numbers reminds us, no matter how great the enemy, no matter how great the threat, no matter how strong the objection, God will win. I don't know how he's going to do it in Australia, but he's done it in other places before. When China tried to clamp down and shut out Christianity during the dark communist years, Christianity actually grew. This is what God is able to do. He will win. And then the final message is, of course, that God is determined to bless, yeah? God is determined to bless. Um, in chapter 22, verse 6, have a look there again. Remember, Balak says to Balaam these words, For I know that whoever you blessed is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. Now, by putting it that way, it's deliberately trying to make us think of another part of the Bible, but it's not in reference to Balaam's powers. It's actually in reference to God. Do you remember when God started it all off? When God promised Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish nation, the Israelites, these are God's words. Have a look on the screen. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And notice this. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Even as Balak uses those words to say, Balaam, you can do it, we're reminded that actually Balaam can't do anything if God has promised this. See, Balak was always doomed to fail because God had already made a promise. And his promise was to bless. And when God has made plans to bless, nothing can stop him. Nothing can stand in the way of God blessing his people. And so ultimately we find that this all happens in God's promise of the Messiah. So my final point, the Messiah. Now Balaam has a final third oracle, and as I said, it's the longest one. We're going to skip to have a look at the end of it, because there's a very interesting reference. It points to the future. And as he looks into the future, look at chapter 24, verse 17. Chapter 24, verse 17. Balaam says, I see him, but not now. He's looking about the future. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. Right? Jacob's another word for Israel. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. Edom, another foreign nation, will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered, but Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. Now, he's looking ahead, and where that is directly fulfilled is in a few hundred years with King David, yeah? But David, he is the star, he is the scepter, the ruler. He will, literally, in history, conquer and subdue Moab and all of these nations. 
under his rule, the great King David. But we also know that every prophecy of David in the Bible is pointing us to David's greater son. And so ultimately, it's not David the Messiah, but Jesus the Messiah that Balaam looks forward to. You see, you want to know where God's guarantee of victory over the enemy is, you look at Jesus. And it's not Moab that he has victory over. As we said, our real enemy is Satan. It's Satan that Jesus strikes the final decisive victory. And in that victory, like we saw in um, Numbers, there's a twist as well. See that one, the ultimate twist. Satan thought that as he got the people, the Romans, together with the Jewish leaders to conspire together to put Jesus, the innocent man, the Son of God, on the cross, Satan thought that putting Jesus on the cross meant that he had won. But of course, we know, don't we? That's the ultimate twist, because it was on the cross that Satan actually lost. Why? Because as Jesus hung on the cross willingly, the power of sin was broken. He took our sin and he paid it all. And then he rose again three days later to defeat death and open the way to eternal life. And that's the ultimate twist, isn't it? You see, the New Testament tells us that in Jesus, God fulfills every promise to bless his people. In the book of Ephesians, Chapter 1, it opens with these words, that God our Father has blessed us. That's His people. If you are a follower of Jesus, He's blessed you in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Jesus. What that's saying is this. Everything worth having in life, you already have in Jesus. And Ephesians 1 lists them for us. Your sins get forgiven. You have the guarantee of eternal life. You get to be God's children, His own adopted sons and daughters. God, the Holy Spirit, is going to come and live inside of you and give you joy and power. See, being blessed means that you have God's favor and that you have His love no matter what happens. And Romans chapter 8, that famous chapter, you might know it says that nothing can separate us from that love. Nothing. Nothing that happens to you in the future. Nothing that's happening to you now. Nothing that happened to you in the past. No matter how you try to change the past or suffering from the past, nothing can separate you from God's favor and love for you in Jesus. And you see, Satan, our enemy, he cannot ever take it away. Like King Balak... He wants to curse the people of God only, as I said, the twist is, on Jesus, on the cross, Jesus already took every curse on our behalf and turned them into a blessing so that we could be blessed. And so Satan knows that he can't take that away. But you know what Satan's strategy is? I'll tell you what his strategy is. This is something important for us, and I'm going to end with this one. His strategy, knowing that he can't take God's blessing away, is... He's going to try to deceive us. Do you know that? Your enemy, Satan, is trying to deceive you. He can't take away God's blessing, but he can lie to you and make you believe that you don't have God's blessing. He can make you lose your confidence that you have God's blessing. 
In other words, He'll make you think that you're a beggar when in fact you're really blessed. A good friend of mine 20 years ago uh, visited South Africa. This is 20 years ago, you just realized, um, just after apartheid. All right, apartheid was when for decades the whites and the blacks were completely separated. It was racist and it was uneven and unequal and the blacks lived um, in terrible, terrible oppression by white folk. Now that finished in the mid-90s and uh, South Africa elected Nelson Mandela as its first black president and, and things had changed overnight dramatically when apartheid ended, yeah? But as he visited um, South Africa and post-apartheid in the mid-90s, he was shocked because as he interacted with the local black South Africans, they kept calling him boss, which was really weird because my friend's Asian and he's not even white. But anyway, the fact is they kept using boss. Okay, boss. Thank you, boss. Here you go, boss. Because it was actually a remnant from the apartheid era when blacks were second-degree citizens, second-rate citizens. But now, even in post-apartheid South Africa, their habit was to call people, especially the whites, boss, which actually meant that they still had a slave mentality even though they were now free. They still live like beggars even though they now had equality. Do you see what I mean? And that's what Satan can do. He can exploit us by deceiving us, making us think that we're slaves, making us think that we're beggars, making us think we don't have God's favor and blessing when in fact we really do. And if you think about it, this is how temptation works, isn't it? Think about the temptation to sin. Whenever Satan is tempting you to sin, often he is working on a feeling of lack that you don't have. And he's deceiving you. Back in the garden with Adam and Eve. Getting them to think that even though God has given them everything, that they don't actually have everything. That God's withholding from them and that's why they needed that fruit, that forbidden fruit that they weren't supposed to have. Every time Satan makes you think you don't have what God has already given you, that's going to give rise to things like greed and lust and anger and conflict because I don't have, I must get. And then after you sin, you think about it, you're stuffed up. Satan will again deceive us and make you think that God is not going to hear your prayers now. That God doesn't love you anymore. There's no point trying to confess because God and you, right, have a relationship break. And that's so not true. But He deceives you in thinking that. And so you don't come and you don't freely and boldly ask God for forgiveness. You see what Satan does? Or, or let's think about prayer. Satan will try and deceive you by undermining that you can ask God as the son or daughter of God for anything and that he hears us and that he is for us and that your prayer is actually powerful because you have the ear of the king of kings so instead though he makes you think this isn't true and so we come with so little faith we pray but we pray with so little confidence we don't really believe and put our hope that God promises to hear us and will act according to our prayers and so we don't really pray as sons and daughters of the King of Kings. Satan knows he can't take away our blessing, but he will do everything he can to make you think you're not blessed 
when you actually are. Well, what if today, as a result of numbers, God could open our eyes? And so we could really see, like Balaam finally saw, and see that God is actually on the side of His people. And if you are His people, then you are one of His. He is on your side. And that we are blessed. And that we have His favor. And even in the midst of suffering, nothing can separate you from God's love for you in Jesus. And what if we could do that so that rather than living like beggars, we can live as blessed. And on top of that, blessed so that we can be a blessing to all those around us. Well, let's pray that God would do that in us. Let's pray. Father God, forgive us when we fail 